let's uh, bow for a moment, shall we? And we're just going to pray. And we'll ask God to help us as we turn to the Bible. Father, we thank you for the songs that we've been singing. We thank you for the possibility of worshipping you. We thank you for Jesus, the light of the world, who has come down from on high to reveal to us your beauty and majesty. We pray now as we turn to your word that you would be with us. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in each of our hearts, that we might know you, see you, and perceive you by faith. We pray that you would make this a precious and meaningful time. And we pray in the strong and good name of Jesus. Amen. We're continuing our studies in Genesis. As, as you know, if you've been here over the last few weeks, we're in particular thinking about uh, the life of Jacob, who is surely one of the most relatable characters in the whole of the Bible because he's so human, probably out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We know the most about Jacob. We're told quite a lot about his life story. He's a man with many flaws. Uh, he's a man who eventually has faith in God. He makes many mistakes along the way. He's very relatable. And that's encouraging, isn't it, for us to see such a realistic character in the Bible. We, we have a big challenge this afternoon, though, because we, I, I've been given a passage to speak to you from. Uh, the, and, and the next part of Jacob's life here is, is, covers a 20-year period and in Genesis here, it's three and a half chapters long. Now, you know that I don't struggle with finding things to say, but someone has given me three and a half chapters to cover. I don't know how my name got on the rotor to do that. But um, we, you, you appreciate that we can't possibly do three and a half chapters in the kind of detail that I, I would love to. So let me begin today by giving you a very quick overview I've spent hours and hours and hours this week of study, and it comes down, in summary, to this. In this larger portion, these three and a half chapters of Genesis in Jacob's life, we're dealing with a crisis and a journey. That, that took me hours to come up with that. I thought you'd look more impressed. Well, that's what we're dealing with, a crisis and then a long journey. 20 years is quite a big chunk of Jacob's life, but the journey he embarks on is a pretty epic journey. So I thought we'd begin by giving you a little bit of a map, and uh, here's a map that I drew, because the ones in the Bible are full of unnecessary detail. So here's a blank map. This is Israel, that's the Mediterranean Sea, and you can see there in the sea it says a crisis and a journey. That's the summary of these three and a half chapters. Um, Jacob's father, Isaac, for most of his life, was based in a town in the south called Beersheba. And there it is. It's quite, that little blue bit at the bottom is the Dead Sea and the River Jordan going up and the Sea of Galilee at the top. And the river going off to the right is called the Jabbok River. We'll come back to that in a minute. So there's Isaac in Beersheba. Um, Last week, we saw how Jacob deceived his poor, blind dad and ripped off his older twin brother Esau. He dressed up as Esau. 
to gain the firstborn blessing that he so craved. We were thinking about that last time. And now his brother Esau wants him dead. And Jacob, the deceiver, has to go on the run. He is fleeing from his brother who wants to slit his throat, basically. His mother, Rebecca, had told him to head north up to a place called Haran. Interestingly, that is where Abraham, his grandfather, came from. So he's doing the reverse journey that his grandfather did many years before. On the way, he stops at a place called Bethel. We'll come back to Bethel in a minute. But this trip is an epic trip, three or four, 400 miles. I tried to measure it with my thumb on the map, but it's roughly three or 400 miles. And the expectation, I think, from Rebecca, his mother, anyway, was that Esau will calm down in a bit and you'll be back before long. But he ends up staying in Haran for 20 years. That's a long time, isn't it? In fact, he never sees his mum again. When he, go, when he goes home, his mum has already died, it seems. So there, there's a sadness in this. His mum tells him to go north to his uncle Laban. Laban, who lives in Haran, is Rebecca's brother. So she sends him north to her brother's place while Esau calms down. While Jacob is away in Haran, in these three and a half chapters, we'll see him get married. He's going to have 11 sons and a daughter. And these 11 sons, plus Benjamin, who's born a little bit later, will ultimately become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is quite a significant historical moment. Basically, the nation of Israel, as we know it in the Bible, was born in exile in Haran, in the north, away from the Promised Land. It's very interesting. And we'll also see Jacob begin his burgeoning career. He works for his uncle Laban, and over this period of 20 years, he, he, Jacob becomes very wealthy. And uh, so this is quite an interesting period in Jacob's life. Eventually, Jacob tries to leave secretly without telling his uncle Laban, and Laban chases him. And uh, so here's the return journey, and it takes about 10 days, I think, for Laban to catch up with him. And, they, and they eventually, Laban is basically going to crush him for leaving, taking all the grandkids. And they meet at a place called Mizpah. They have a very interesting, quite angry discussion there. But they end up making a truce. And Laban goes back to Haran. And Jacob, as we'll see over the next few weeks, crosses the Jabbok River and heads west eventually to Bethel, and eventually back to his father. This part of Jacob's life is basically a 20-year, nearly 1,000-mile round trip. Does that make sense? It took me all week to wear that out. There we are. You get it for nothing. I th this is a dramatic story. As I'm reading these chapters, I think this would make a great film. I don't know why... No one has made a film. Maybe we should. Um, but here's, here's what I'm getting from this narrative. It's a crisis in Jacob's life and then a journey. I want to say this. Let's leave the map now. 
This, this is the story of these 20 years. A crisis and a process. And I, I, I think when we say it like that, I think that's very relatable, isn't it, in life. Most of our lives feel quite ordinary, I think. Our comings and goings, the things we do. Occasionally, in our lives, we come across a crisis moment. I don't mean minor inconveniences. I mean the kind of thing that shapes and defines our lives. And actually, these two things are not unconnected. The way we respond to a crisis is affected by how we live in the ordinary days. And the way we respond in the ordinary days affects how we respond when a crisis comes, doesn't it? So these things are not disconnected. Jacob's crisis here involves God, for the first time in his life, coming to meet Jacob. The process involves God changing Jacob. And that process goes on for 20 years and beyond, as we'll see in the rest of Genesis. Here's what I want you to get, and we'll, we'll unpack this as we go through today. Before this crisis, Jacob was a man who knew about God from what other people had told him. But he didn't know God personally, himself, in his own experience. Everything that he knew was second-hand knowledge. But in this crisis moment in his life, everything changes, and for the first time in his life, he experiences a relationship with the living God who has come to him to meet him. And that casts a is it a shadow or a light over the next 20 years? He leaves Beersheba frightened and looking for a wife up in the north with his uncle Laban. But when he meets God at Bethel, what that does is make this journey into a pilgrimage. Now he goes on this 20-mile, 1,000-mile round trip with God's grace in his heart. And there's a transforming characteristic about that. So there's, there's three and a half chapters for you. Jacob, when he travels to Haran, faces great difficulties. The, in many ways, the, the journey is an ordinary life. But the problem is that when Jacob gets to Haran, his uncle Laban is more of a trickster than Jacob was. And those 20 years were hard for Jacob. Ironically, Jacob loved the younger daughter of two. And Laban tricks him into marrying the older to Jacob, uglier one, basically. And Jacob's like, what have you done? He then gives him the younger one as well. She has two wives. And Jacob's family life in these chapters is dominated by the stress and competitiveness of wives who want him to love them. Is this ironic and reminiscent of what Jacob's already experienced at home in Beersheba? And his uncle Laban, for 20 years, continually rips him off. Jacob says later on that Laban changed his wages 10 times in 20 years to favor himself rather than Jacob. So these 20 years for Jacob are a 
very difficult time. But Jacob gets a 20-year taste of his own medicine. Can I say it like that? He, he deceived his dad and ripped off his brother and then spends the next 20 years having a taste of what that felt like. But he has God's grace in his heart, which means that those difficulties are not random difficulties. They are designed by a loving father to transform his character. So there's a crisis here, and then there's a process here. What, what I want to do this afternoon, because of time, and having already apologised for being too long, I can't fall into that trap again today. I want to focus primarily on the crisis part of this equation, okay? So Luke read to us from Genesis chapter 28, and we're just going to focus mainly on these first few verses. And I think you'll see that what happens in these verses is the key to understanding all that happens for the next 20 years in Jacob's life. You can go home and do your homework on that, or you can stay until 9 o'clock. So Genesis chapter 28, if you've got a Bible, it would really help if you can keep your Bible open. Page 30 in the church Bibles, um, Genesis 28, verse 10. In this section, Jacob is on the run from his murderous brother Esau. And in the first two verses here, the narrator very skillfully, and I think very powerfully, gives us a little word picture of a very sad Jacob. Just look with me again at verse um, 10. I have to, my, my, um, my eyesight's getting worse. The author says to us, Jacob left Beersheba, you know now that that's in the south, and he set out for Haran in the north, and when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night, because the sun had set, taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head, and he lay down to sleep. I think the narrator is very skillful here. First of all, notice that Jacob is in a place with no name. Later on, we find out that this is actually a city, but at this point, the narrator just says, when he reached a certain place, it's a nowhere place. There's nothing the narrator can say about this place. In terms of his life, what the narrator's saying to us is that Jacob is literally, in his life, in the middle of nowhere. Secondly, he has no money or any stuff. This is the guy who's just received the firstborn blessing and all the inheritance that that entails from his father Isaac, but he's completely penniless here. How do we know that? The author tells us he put his head on a stone. Who does that if they've got even a rucksack? You, you know, I, there's times when I've been on my own, maybe when I was younger, traveling, and you, you'd kind of fold your coat, wouldn't you, and put your head on that? Jacob, there's no hotel, there's no room, there's not even a bed. He doesn't even have anything to make into a pillow. And thirdly, he's alone. Here's the man, it says in Genesis, who lived in his mother and father's tents all his life. And here he has no one. 
And to add to the sadness, the narrator recounts that the sun was setting. Everything's going dark. One writer says this, the setting of God meeting with Jacob matches Jacob's psychological condition. The security of the sun has been replaced by the dangers of the night. The comfort of his parents' tent has been replaced by a rock. Behind him lays Beersheba, where Esau wants to kill him. Ahead of him is Haran, where his uncle Laban waits to exploit him. It just needs some sad violin music, doesn't it? To finish it up. It's like... This entire bleak, weird picture, I think, though implies some spiritual realities too. Let me give you some things to think about. Jacob's life, first of all, does not live up to God's promises. I think that's obvious, isn't it? What do I mean by that? Jacob, now, as an adult know something of the promises of God in and over his life. His father Isaac did eventually, quite reluctantly we saw last week, give him the covenant promises that had been given originally to Abraham. Just look with me at chapter 28 and verse 3. Just on the same page there. Isaac said to Jacob, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Ha! Is that some kind of sick joke? Here he is, the sun setting, sleeping on a rock in the middle of nowhere. His life currently doesn't look anything like what God's promise to him was. Do you get that? None of it. Didn't God say the older one will save the younger one? At this point, the older one wants to slit his throat. His life looks nothing like what God apparently has promised to him. Everything is falling apart. Secondly, I want you to notice something else Jacob's life doesn't match either the experience of his own parents his grandfather Abraham had met God his father Isaac despite his faults had met God but up to this point Jacob the only thing he knows about God is what other people have told him. We could say at this point that Jacob believes in God, but that's not enough. I, he doesn't know God. I, I don't know how to say this, and you know, you, you know what I mean, don't you? He 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 believes in God in his head, but he hasn't encountered God or experienced God or had any kind of relationship. With God. I think the author emphasizes this in the verses we were looking at last week. Do you remember when Isaac, um, J- Jacob goes in with the meal the mum's cooked? 
And Isaac's a bit suspicious, and he says, how how did you catch this food so quick? Have you really been out to the field and shot that, cooked it? And what does Jacob reply to his blind dad? The Lord your God gave me success. You see what he said there? Not the Lord my God, but the Lord your God. He only knows God as the God of his dad, not his personal God. I think this is reflected by the fact, and I don't want to gloss over this, that at this point in Jacob's life, he is not inclined to pray or to seek God or to look for God. When we look at those two verses, he's in a miserable state. His life doesn't match what God has promised him. He doesn't even have the experience of his parents. And he goes to sleep with his head on a stone. As I've been reflecting on Jacob this week, uh, I think there are possibly a couple of things that affect Jacob here that we could express as questions. And maybe you'll be able to relate to to these. Um, One is a more general question. What on earth is God doing in my life? Or in the world even? The other question is a more personal one. What on earth have I done? As Jacob goes to sleep here, I think he knows something of a mingling of doubt on the one hand and guilt on the other hand. He knows that it's his fault that he's running, doesn't he? His behavior has been deceitful. It's beginning to dawn on him, perhaps, that he's been stupid. And he's paying a high price for that now. His brother at home is bitterly angry. I I wonder whether you've ever experienced someone hating you. One writer says this about Jacob, it is a terrible weight. It is a terrible weight to be so hated. How bitter it must have been for Jacob to know that his misery was the creation of his own unbelieving deceit and stupidity. The mouth of God had promised Jacob the firstborn position, but Jacob had stolen it with his own lies. The guilt he feels. But but there's a doubt there. God seems remote and distant. I, I, I'm picturing Jacob here at Bethel, spiritually looking up and feeling like there's nothing there. Why, God? Where are you? God, what on earth are you doing in my life, God? How can you promise me such amazing things and then let this happen? I wonder whether Jacob even thinks, God, if you loved me, surely you could have stopped me from doing the stupid things I've done. Do you ever feel like that? This mingling of doubt and guilt, I think, 
I, I think we, we can relate to it. I, I, I know I can. As Jacob goes to sleep here at Bethel, all he can hear is the silence. And all he can see is the darkness. Do you ever feel like that? This is a low, low point. Jacob here is at what we might describe as rock bottom. What a mess he has made of his life so far. This is not a man who is even seeking God. Have I done enough to paint the picture for you? Little does he realize that his reality could not be more different to that perception. Little does he realize that this very evening, as he goes to sleep on that rock, God has other plans for him. Let's think for a moment then about God's perspective. Jacob, as he goes to sleep, has an amazing dream. Sounds odd to our sensible, scientific, Western minds, doesn't it? But here, Jacob has an amazing dream. I think there are, he didn't ask for it. But while he's sleeping, this dream comes. There are four parts to his dream. I'll just put them up all together. There we go. We can read the verses here. There's a great staircase, first of all, resting on the earth, reaching all the way up to heaven. On this staircase, there's angels who are on the move, going up and down, and standing on the top of this staircase, I don't know, it's the Lord himself. And fourthly, the Lord on the top of the staircase speaks to Jacob personally and gives him promises. This is the first time in his life that he has met the living God himself. This is the passage where we get the expression, Jacob's ladder from. If you've ever been to Kinder Scout in the Lake District, you might have walked down the steep path called Jacob's Ladder. I think when the Bible translates it ladder, it's not great. The old versions say ladder, and it makes you think of a ladder with rungs. You can't really imagine angels going up and down on a ladder with rungs, can you, without knocking each other off? It, the better translation is right here. It says stairway. It, this is a massive staircase. I'll show you a picture of one like it later. Um, I'm not an expert in, in Hebrew at all, but in, in my studies this week, I came across a wrong writer who said that the way this is written in the original language, it's very expressive to denote Jacob's increasing astonishment at what he sees. So, I don't know, we, we sometimes have this experience, don't we? It's as if Jacob sees an amazing staircase and goes, wow, look at the staircase. And then he goes, whoa, there's angels going up and down as well. And then he goes, not only that, but there's someone on the top. And not only that, but the, this person on the top is speaking to me. You get the sense that the, the language is expressive of him going, wow, increasingly, as the vision kind of grows in his Sight. What does it all mean? We talked about Jacob going to sleep, feeling a sense of doubt and guilt. 
And here God comes to him most graciously with this amazing dream. Let let me take the, the doubt part first. I think in a general sense, this dream shows Jacob that the God and creator and sovereign of this world is not absent. Here is a great connection. Jacob is going to sleep thinking, if there is a God, he's far away from me. And then God in this dream kind of opens the curtains. And Jacob gets a little glimpse of the real reality that this God is not far away, but right here. There's this great connection between heaven above and the earth below. There's travel going on between these two realms. When we think of angels, we think of Christmas, I don't know, fluffy angels with nice little white wings, you know. When, listen, when anyone ever in the Bible met an angel, they didn't have to say, excuse me, are you an angel, just so I know. The first words that any angel speaks to a human when an angel appeared was, fear not. So don't think of pathetic little nice white winged creatures going up and down. These are majestic, royal servants of God, powerful beings. And this stairway that rests on the earth and yet touches heaven, and these mighty royal servants of God coming out of the palace of heaven, coming out of the throne room of the universe and going all around the world and then coming back to report to him. This is the scene that Jacob sees. This is a scene of business going on. This is a scene of divine activity going on. Jacob went to sleep as a sort of atheist, feeling that God is distant and remote And here he gets a glimpse of what is really going on, and it is awe-inspiring. Listen, this this world, I don't know, what, what do you think when you read the news? This world is a mess, isn't it? Do we not look up like Jacob did to the heavens? Listen, there there are many, many things that we do not understand. And I know that 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 is a global thing, but I know from talking to some of you pastorally, I, I, I can't answer all the why questions. But what I can do is point you to a who. What this picture is telling Jacob is not that he can know all of God's reasons and all the answers to all of his questions. What this vision is telling Jacob is that God is not absent. Jacob, I am not remote and detached and distant. I am right here, high above this scene. 
if you are a victim of great sorrow or trauma, if you are feeling the weight of your own failure even, it can be tempting to find comfort in the idea that God somehow went on a holiday. He's absent. He didn't know. But I don't think that will help you. What we need to know is this vision. That the living God is truly, intimately, powerfully, majestically involved and at work in his world. Even in the sorrows of our lives, we don't know why, but we do know the who. We'll get to Jacob's response in a minute, but a sneak preview. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. Isn't that profound? Jacob now feels like he's been asleep his whole life. (laughs) Up to this point. And the curtains have just been opened. I thought God was somewhere else. And now he's seen the Lord in his glory standing over the world like the mighty sovereign king that he really is. But there's a more personal sense to this as well. God is not absent from Jacob's own life either. Listen, God is not just standing over the world, but here he is standing over Jacob too. This awesome God, who rules the eternal ages, stands over Jacob's life like a loving parent standing over a frightened, sleeping child. This is the lowest point of his life. And the God of the ages stands next to his crib and looks upon him with love. Isn't that beautiful? At this point, he has no one, he has nothing, he's in the middle of nowhere, and the Lord God stands over him to love him. Look at the promises God makes to Jacob. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you generosity. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you'll spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. Presence. Do you know this is the first time in the Bible God says that to anyone? I am with you. Jacob heard those words before anyone else did. God says it plenty of times in the rest of the Bible story. Jacob, here at this low point, is the first to hear God say, I'm with you. I'm with you and will watch over you. Protection. Wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. What? He wasn't even praying. And God comes to him 
and gives him everything. When I think about the angels going up and down into God's presence and out again, Jacob here is fleeing. He's going out, and it's almost as if God says to him, see those angels going up and down? It's going to be the same for you. You're going to go out, but I'll bring you back. You're safe in my hands. Can you hear in God's voice any note of condemnation to Jacob can you hear God morbidly reviewing Jacob's past life what is going on here is that this God graciously is giving Jacob a new future This mighty God isn't just the sovereign king of the world, but he graciously stands over Jacob to bless him with his own love. Last week, Jacob thought he had to dress up to get this. And now he thinks he's lost it because of his own stupidity. And as he goes to sleep all alone with the sting of failure, God comes to him and meets him for the first time in his life and now he knows without a doubt that this God is full of kindness to him personally. One author I came across says this, This is all grace. Jacob, the conniving believer, who was outcast and alone due to his own sin, who merited nothing from God, was met by God in his misery with unparalleled revelation of God's care and assurance for the future. Jacob was not seeking God. He was fleeing the consequences of his deception. He was not expecting grace, but grace was unleashed upon his soul and with not even a word of reproach. Let's move on to think about Jacob's reaction. Um, verse 16, I think it is. Oh, yeah. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Verse 17. He, he was afraid. And Jacob said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. First of all, he was afraid. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, Jacob is running away from home because he was afraid of Esau slitting his throat. And now he's met the living God. And Esau, at home, pales into insignificance. He sees something of the power and majesty of God and the love and kindness of God. And I don't know what you're like when you're waking up, but when Jacob wakes up, the first thing he goes is, whoa, he's frying. He's, this is, there's awe 
Here's the problem. You, you, you may know this. When, whenever people saw God in the Old Testament, they were so struck by his awesome holiness and glory that it made them recoil in fear with a sense of their own sinfulness. So, for example, God asks Mo, uh, Moses, sorry, ask God if he can see God. And God says to him, I'll let you see a little bit of my back. Because otherwise, the sight of my glory would kill you. Later on, Isaiah saw God and he cried out on his face, Woe unto me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. When he saw God, it showed him who he was. In other words, the sight of God is not a comfortable one for us. Even Peter, the disciple of Jesus in the New Testament, experienced something of this. Jesus revealed something of his power on one occasion and you, you may recall, Peter wanted to hide, and he cried out to Jesus, Lord, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He, he, the sight of Christ and his glory, he couldn't bear to have Jesus look at him. Seeing the blazing glory of God actually hurt our sinful eyes. So this dream here presents us with a great problem. If God is righteous and pure and holy and awesome, and Jacob surely isn't all of those things, we've seen his life, how can this God come to him? How can God overlook Jacob's failure? He doesn't even mention it. How does this great stairway connecting heaven and earth connect the awesome majesty of God with the trivial sinfulness of us humans. What is going on? I, I think Jacob says something very significant here. And um, here it is. This is the gate of heaven. It's there in verse 17. Is that? This is none other than the house of God. That means Bethel house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I want to say three things about this idea of the gate of heaven and then we're done. First of all, I want you to see that God has to take the initiative if we're going to have a relationship with him. The phrase that Jacob uses here, the gate of heaven, is an interesting one because it's related to the word Babel. Where does that come in the Bible? Babel? It's not a rhetorical question. The Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11. Luke recaps some of that for us at the beginning of this series. The Tower of Babel. What happened at the Tower of Babel? Human beings got together and said, we're going to build a tower up to the heavens and we'll reach God. That's what Babel is significant for. In ancient times, temples were built like this. I said I'd show you a picture. See that? That's called a ziggurat. See the increasing steps going up? 
And the idea is the worshipper would come up the ramp, bring in their sacrifices and prayers and oblations, and on the very top, close to heaven, they'd make their sacrifices. Sometimes in pagan religions, they even sacrifice their children. This is a ziggurat. Here's another picture of a real ziggurat in Ur, where Abraham came from. This is a ruin. Here's a whole bunch of U.S. soldiers going up and down. I think this is similar to what Jacob would have seen, but without the U.S. soldiers, like powerful angels, even bigger than U.S. soldiers. This is the kind, when it says a great stairway, this is what Jacob's saying, a ziggurat. And imagine God in his glory standing at the top and the angels going up and down. This is the awesome sight that he saw. What is different here? In Jacob's dream, there's no human beings building a tower up to heaven. All these human ziggurat temples are an effort by human beings to reach up to God. But this stairway is a stairway not from earth to heaven, but from heaven to earth. God built this stairway. He is the one who takes the initiative. He is the one who builds the connection between heaven and earth. It's a simple truth. I want to say secondly, I don't know if the battery's going on. Here's the second thing. Jesus is the staircase. You need to be quick. In the New Testament, Jesus mentions this very dream of Jacob. Jesus himself mentions this very dream in an amazing way. We won't turn to it, but it's in John chapter 1. You can read it at home later. Here's what happens. There's a man called Nathaniel. He has a friend called Philip. And his friend Philip tells him that he's met the Messiah and that he's from Nazareth. And interestingly, Nathaniel says, you've got to be joking me. Has anything good ever come from Nazareth? In other words, if God was going to come down, he wouldn't come down there. He would put his ladder somewhere else better than Nazareth. Anyway, they go and they meet Jesus, and Jesus greets Nathaniel by basically complimenting him. And he, as Nathaniel comes towards him, he says, there's a straightforward, honest guy. And Nathaniel goes, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. We don't know where the fig tree was or what Nathaniel was doing. The point is, it was private and it was something that only Nathaniel knew. And Jesus speaks into the deepest recesses of his heart and says, Mate, I saw you. When you were in that place where nobody else knew what you were doing or where you were, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel's jaw hits the floor. His eyes are popping out of his head. And he says, truly, you are the Son of God. If you know that, you are the Son of God. Then Jesus says something that shatters this passage in Genesis. He says to Nathaniel, if you think that was amazing, listen to this, mate. One day, you will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He 
It doesn't say you'll see the angels ascending and descending to the Son of Man. He says they'll be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus randomly seems to pick this story that we're looking at this afternoon and he says to Nathaniel, you remember those massive steps that Jacob saw with the powerful angels going up and down? I am those steps. I'm the link between heaven and earth. Nathaniel, it's me. Here's the thing, and I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is not saying to Nathaniel or to us or to anyone else, listen guys, come to me and I will point you to the steps. Jesus is the steps. What are the steps? I I think the steps are all the things that we should do to climb in order to get to God. Every religion has this. Every religion has steps that we need to climb to get to God. Jesus is saying, I'm not pointing you to the steps and inviting you to climb them. I am the steps for you. In other words, Jesus has done all the climbing. He's completed all the steps. He's lived the life we should have lived. He's lived the life that Jacob should have lived. He's died the death that we deserve. The real gate of heaven, Jacob knew the secret. It's right here. Here's the gate of heaven, he says. But he he realizes in that moment, he doesn't see it all, but he realizes in that moment that the gate of heaven is not a series of tasks to achieve, but it's actually a person who has achieved it all already. Listen to me this afternoon. If you only see Jesus as a religious figure who is pointing you to the steps that you then need to climb, the gate of heaven will be closed to you. It's only when you see with the eyes of faith that he he is the steps that the door will swing open for you. There's something else here too. I said earlier that God does not give us all the answers or reasons for suffering. What he does give us is himself. And the glory of God is shown in the fact that Christ came into the world and experienced our suffering. Because of Jesus, suffering isn't the final word. It's transformed all the glorious activity of a sovereign God in this world. In other words, all the comings and goings of God's royal messengers in this world, it all takes place on the back of Jesus, a crucified Savior. What this vision is saying to you and to me, to all of us, is that nothing in this world will ever make sense properly until we see it all through the weakness and sacrifice and poverty of Jesus Christ. Well-known American author Tim Keller says this, what this means is that only Christianity tells us 
that Christ came down and suffered. He suffered unjustly, like we sometimes do. He suffered tragedy, like we sometimes do. He suffered apparently senseless things, but as he suffered on the cross, out of physical death, he brought real life. Out of material poverty, he brought real riches. Out of worldly brokenness and weakness, he brought real strength. This vision is describing a God-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered worldview to Jacob at his lowest point. Hey, I said there were three. Last one. I want you to see that God meets us right where we are. Do you see? Jacob's at his lowest point, doubting God, feeling guilty. God comes to him and says, here I am, I love you, I'll be with you, I'll protect you, I will bring you home. There's a contrast here between the height of the highest God and the lowest depths of Jacob's life. And yet, is he in a temple? Is he in a church? God met him right where he was. In a sense, we're all like Jacob, constantly on the run because of our sins. We imagine like Jacob that God couldn't be with us or wouldn't want to be with us. But friends, there is a stairway. God came down to Jacob in this nowhere, nothing place in his sin and misery and gave him everything. That, friends, is grace. We have no time to consider Jacob's journey. You'll be thankful for that. But I do want you to see that he embarks on that journey on the back of this crisis. He is a new man. He had set off in fear to find a wife, but now his journey has become a pilgrimage in which God is at work in his heart, even in his difficulties. He isn't perfect, but he is what we would call now a work in progress. And he goes with the grace of God in his heart. I have two questions for you. Firstly, I want to ask all of you, is God bringing you to the crisis point of your life? Maybe he is. Maybe you, like Jacob, have only known God up to this point in your life because other people who do know him have told you about him. Do you sense even now, through God's word, him coming to you and revealing his beauty to you? Can you see how Jesus is the one who opens the gate of heaven for you? I want you to see and embrace the grace of God. I want you to see like Jacob saw this awesome God standing over all the messiness of your life, loving you from the beginning to the end. If God is calling you, even today, like he called Jacob on this day, why not make it real today? Confess it like Jacob did. Build an altar to him in your heart choose to follow him for the rest of your days.
My second question is to those of you who do know God, and perhaps you feel discouraged today with some difficult thing in your life. Maybe it's a long-term thing. My question is this. Can you see the process that you are now in? Can you see that God is not remote, distant, but standing over you? He's with you. He will protect you. He will provide for you. He will bring you home. It's God bringing you to your crisis. Do you see something of that loving process? Friends, let me close with some well-known words. I said last week that Romans chapter 8 sprung on my mind. Just read, I'm just going to read these words, Romans 8, 31. I think Jacob could have said this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future or any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen? <laughs> Just trying to wait, you Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that it points us to the the only one who can do our souls good. We thank you that Jacob's life, his experience, your grace to him at his lowest point points us to Jesus. I pray that we would all be enabled by your power to respond to that grace. Help us to embrace Jesus. Help us to stop climbing and trust him. And Father, for those who maybe are suffering with pain of various kinds, we just pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, that you would encourage us with the thought and the knowledge that you are standing over us, that you love us, that you care for us, that you are not distant. We pray that that truth might do our souls good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.